0: Today's reading will be from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. It's on page 571 in your pew Bibles. Please rise. Let's continue our worship as we read God's word. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is God's word.
1: We are, we concluded our summer time in Psalms last week. Next week we will go back to the Gospel of Mark. But this week we're talking about a very important idea and concept. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the earth fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not optional. Optional. It is front and center with having a relationship with God and living a life that is godly and fulfilling. Proverbs 14:27 The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 19:23 The fear of the Lord leads to life whoever has it rests satisfied. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it is the pathway to God's love. Psalm 103, verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. The fear of the Lord is central to the Christian life. Do you fear him? Let's pray. Our Lord, meet us today wherever we are on our spiritual journeys to bring us into this glorious truth. Minister to us, to our hearts with it, so that we might honor, revere, and give you the rightful place in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's confusion regarding the fear of the Lord. It's misunderstood by many outside the church and inside. So we'll begin with a classic Hebrew dictionary edited by Brown, Driver, and Briggs. It lists the first definition of the word fear as being fearful of. It means what it sounds like, be afraid. And this conjures up images of frightened and anxiety-ridden Christians living as though the sword of Democles is hanging over their heads, ready to fall at this first sign of any sin. But that image is in such contrast to the image we see in the New Testament of the Christian life being that of love, joy, and peace. So which is it? What image of the Christian life is on target? Are we to be afraid of God? Or are we to rest in his love and be motivated by it? We're going to see that there's a time for each of these in our lives. Brown, Driver, and Briggs lists a second meaning of the word to fear, and that is to revere. And we see both of those meanings in Exodus 20:20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So we could paraphrase this verse as, Don't be afraid. One meaning of fear. God is testing you that you might revere him the second meaning of fear. And that, in turn, keeps us from sinning. Now note, what keeps them from sinning is not the being afraid of God, but the revering God. So we're going to see that the core meaning of the fear of the Lord is to revere Him for who He is. And sometimes there's an element of being afraid, And sometimes of being anchored in his love. But it always means to give God his rightful place in our lives. So we turn to Isaiah chapter 6 to see what the fear of the Lord means for sinless beings, sinful humanity, and Sinful humanity that has been redeemed. Perhaps the clearest, purest, and most comprehensive picture of what the fear of Lord is meant to be is found in the response of the seraphim who were untainted by sin. And they become a model for us. They see God in all of his majesty and they're captivated by every feature of him. And they respond by giving Him the rightful place in their lives by glorifying Him and serving Him. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of His robe filled the temple. Like Isaiah... They saw God in all of his majesty. God was sitting on a throne that was high and lifted up above every other throne, expressing that he is the king of kings. They need not fear because their king died. They have the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. No earthly king is anything like him, has any power like he has. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The length of a monarch's robe was a symbol of the glory, splendor, triumph, and worth of that king. And since in that day clothing was made from scratch, it was very expensive to have a long train. So it spoke of the worth of that king. In addition, when one king would conquer another, he would cut off some of the robe of that king and attach it to his robe as a declaration of his victory. And so the longer the robe, it spoke of the greater and more victories that that king had won. It spoke of his glory and the Lord's train of his robe filled the entire temple. And we see now in verses 2 and 3, the seraphim, these angelic beings' response. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The seraphim saw God's majesty and they were in awe of his holiness. So they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In English, we intensify a word by adding ER or EST. Tom Brady is greater than any other quarterback. Tom Brady is the greatest football player of all time. Well, in the Hebrew, that day, they intensified a word by saying it over again. So it would be, Tom Brady is great, great. That's the greatest. But we see here the seraphim, add another, holy, holy, holy not only is he the, the holiest of all, he's even beyond that. They're captured by his holiness. Now, the word holy means to set apart, to be separate, to be above another. And we usually apply it to God's moral character, that God is holy, he is perfectly moral he is without sin in any way but we can apply the word holy separate to every one of God's attributes Psalm 103 verse 11 applies it to his love for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him so high as heaven is above the earth is another way of saying holy. Is, is that separate? Isaiah 55, 7 through 9 applies it to God's compassion and grace. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and return to our God that he will abundantly pardon. Now here comes the separation. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than yours. We can say that about every single attribute of God. Each is beyond what we could think or imagine. His faithfulness, His power, His wisdom, knowledge, justice, mercy, every attribute is holy, holy, holy. And the seraphim hold Him up in that glory. The fear of the Lord begins by seeing and acknowledging God for who He is. And this should lead us to put him in his rightful place in our lives, just as it did the seraphim. They worshipped God, and they wanted him to be glorified in their lives and throughout the whole world. They cried out, the whole earth is filled with his glory, which could be paraphrased as an expression of their desire. May his glory fill the whole earth that's what they wanted they saw his glory they gave him glory but they wanted all of creation to give god the glory that he deserved and that's actually what jesus told us to pray when he said hallowed be your name holy above all others should your name be declared throughout the world May God be given his rightful place on the throne of Israel, on the throne of the world, and the throne of our lives. Isaiah's description of their actions gives additional insight into what it means to revere God. They hide their faces because the glory of God is too overwhelming for them. They feel unworthy to look upon God. They feel unworthy for God to look upon them. This is a rebuke to attitudes that are becoming more and more common today. Instead of us sitting under God's seat of justice We sit ourselves over God by complaining about Him. Instead of serving God, we treat Him as though He's our servant. Instead of keeping Him in in the center of lives, we move Him to the periphery of our lives. Instead of being overwhelmed by His glory, we reinvent Him to fit our personal preferences and justify the way we want to live. We need to revere God to hold him up in all the glory that he has. The seraphim covered their feet, which is an expression of humility. They understood who God is. They made him big. We tend to make ourselves big. They placed themselves under God, not over him. And with two wings they flew, Picturing their readiness to travel wherever God would have them to serve Him, carrying out His will. These angelic beings show us what it means to fear God. The angelic realm still cries out Worthy are you, O Lord, O God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now there's a different picture of the fear of the Lord for humanity. Because we are tainted by sin. And the idea includes fear. Being afraid of God. When we realize the perfections of his holiness and his justice, there, and that there will one day we will stand before God's throne of justice, we should be cowering in fear because we know then that we are sinners who deserve to be condemned. We'll recognize the depths of our sinfulness and the certainty of judgment. See, our our natural bent is to compare ourselves to other people. And we usually come out pretty well. It's like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who went up to pray in the temple next to the tax collector. And what did he say? God, look at how great I am. And now compare me to this tax collector and thieves and prostitutes. Compare me to them and look at how wonderful I am. We might come out okay if we compare ourselves to other people. But Jesus said, compare yourself to God. Be perfect for the Lord our God is perfect. Be holy for he is holy. When we compare ourselves to God, we have a different picture of ourselves. We fall far short and we deserve his judgment. And this was Isaiah's experience, we read in verses four and five. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of unclean people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the King. Now he understands what he looks like at the sight of God. Having witnessed God's glory, having heard the declaration of God's holiness, Isaiah looked at himself. He saw a sinner, a man of unclean lips, We don't understand the depths of our sinfulness until we look at God first. But even then, many of us might acknowledge, yes, I have sinned, but not so bad that I deserve God's judgment. And after all, God is loving and gracious. And so he's going to accept me in spite of that. Well, Isaiah knew that that's a lie. Why? Because he had seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He understood all of who God is. Yes, loving, merciful, but also just and holy. Righteous. That God, if he is to be just and righteous, has to judge sin. So this leads Isaiah to declare, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm in trouble. Uh, Other translations, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am such deep trouble. I'm lost. He was rightly afraid of God. But this changes when he's forgiven. His fear is justified until that happens. We should all be afraid of coming before God if our sins are not covered. Jesus said, we should fear God in this way. Matthew 10, 20. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy the soul and the body in hell. Until we reach that point, we won't turn to Christ as Savior. When we do reach that point, we will begin to say, woe is me, where is my salvation? Well, God's already provided it, as we see in the next verses. God is holy, righteous, and just, which leads to us being afraid of him. He's also loving, merciful, and gracious, as high as the heavens are above the earth. God so loves the world that he sent his Son to atone for our sin. And so we read verses 6 and 7. They give us a window into what the fear of the Lord means for those who are sinners, who are redeemed and forgiven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having a, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins atoned for. Isaiah feared God's judgment until his lips were touched by a coal from the altar. The altar represents the sacrifice of a lamb, a bull, or a goat to pay for our sin. Now the book of Hebrews informs us that the blood of animals can't pay the penalty of the sins of humans. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to the future Messiah, who would be the sacrificial lamb, paying the penalty for our sins so we can be forgiven. Isaiah was forgiven. His sins were atoned for. Isaiah didn't atone for his own sin. None of us can atone for our own sin. Christ atoned for them. The touch of the coal to his lips communicates that Christ's atonement covered Isaiah's sin completely and it covers ours when we put our faith in Christ we are fully forgiven freed from God's judgment freed from the fear that would frighten us 1 John says perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with judgment we're not under that anymore the one who fears is not made perfect in love. What he's saying is stop being afraid of God. Stop being afraid of God's judgment because that gets in the way of you understanding the, the magnitude and vastness of God's love. And it's not going to be perfected in you, which is what God wants us to do. We have to travel through that fear to that forgiveness, to experiencing that love we haven't applied fully the love of Christ and his atonement in our lives if we still have any semblance of being afraid of God's judgment. Christ was judged in our place once for all. Embrace his love. Be made perfect in that love. Isaiah experienced God's love when the coal touched his lips. Any fear of judgment was gone and it was replaced with a reverence like that of the seraphim. He was ready to serve the Lord in whatever the Lord asked. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. Ready to serve. Then God told him, When you go out and proclaim God's word, you are not going to be welcomed. You're going to antagonize the listeners who are going to harden their hearts toward me, God, and toward you. So Isaiah's response was, how long? I'm sure he was hoping three weeks, six months, a year max, right, God? God's response was, until Israel is judged and in exile. In other words, always for you, Isaiah. Isaiah didn't say, uh, you know, I know I made a nice offer to you, but, uh, you know, isn't there a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel who could do that a little bit later? No. He served God sacrificially selflessly because he had seen the glory of God and he had been forgiven and knew the perfection of God's love in his life. He served God because he was forgiven. His sins were atoned for. And we know from other scriptures that forgiveness leads to love. Jesus told Simon the Pharisee, He who is forgiven much loves much. And we know he who loves much serves much, worships much, honors God much. First Samuel 1224 captures the reverential fear that leads to selfless service. Only fear the Lord Serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. This is the pattern of the Christian life. We don't honor, serve, or follow the Lord in order to gain forgiveness. We honor, serve, and follow the Lord because we are forgiven, because we've experienced his love. We see what it cost him, the life of his son. We love because he first loved us. He's done many great things for us. The greatest of all is the gift of his son to bear the judgment we deserve. We no longer need to say, woe is me. We say, as far as the east is from the west, so far you have removed our sin from us. We say, I am a child of God, deeply loved by him. I love him and I fear him, giving him the glory he deserves and putting him in his rightful place in my life so that I may glorify him and enjoy him forever. We should look to Isaiah to understand the meaning of fear of the Lord. Jesus gives us an even clearer picture of what fear of the Lord has always intended to be. We see this in Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 11, he says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in, doesn't say, the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can delight in the fear of God putting him in his rightful place in our lives. In John 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples, that all of us, would have and experience the joy that Jesus experiences with the Father. And what's that joy? What's that delight? The fear of the Lord. The depth of that relationship with God because he sees God, he knows God for who he is. And the passion of his heart is to know, serve, be with, glorify the Father. That's the fear of the Lord. Let it be ours as well. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word which helps us navigate the pathways of life. I ask that what you said to us this morning would be brought deep into our lives, that it wouldn't be a Sunday morning sermon that stays in the pews of Westgate, but enters our lives and we take it out into the world, especially in our relationship with you. That we might worship you, give you the glory you deserve, but also desire as a seraphim, that your glory be captured throughout the world. And that everyone, one day, would you give you the glory, the rightful place in their lives that you deserve. Amen.